0: Here, Spurgeon, a Charles Spurgeon podcast. Christ is glorious, let us make him known. Sermon number 560, delivered on Sunday morning, March 20th, 1864, by Charles Spurgeon, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Micah chapter 5 verse 4 You have a very vivid idea of the sufferings of Christ. Your faith has seen him sweating great drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane, You have looked with amazement while he gave his back to the Roman scourge and his cheeks to those who pulled out the hair and did not hide his face from the shameful spitting. With sorrowful sympathy, you have followed him through the streets of Jerusalem, weeping and wailing for him with the women. You have sat down to watch him when he was fastened to the tree. You have wept at his bitter cry, "'My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?' And you have rejoiced in his shout of victory. It is finished. With Mary Magdalene and Nicodemus, you have followed his dead body to the tomb and seen it wrapped with spices and left to its lonely sleep. But are your perceptions as clear concerning the glory which did follow and is following? Can you see him? quite as distinctly when on the third day the conqueror rises, bursting the bonds of death with which he could not be held. Can you as clearly view him ascending up on high, leading captivity captive? Can you hear the ring of angelic trumpets as the victor returns from the battle, dragging death and hell at his chariot wheels? Do you plainly perceive him as he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father until his enemies shall be made his footstool? Can you be as clear this morning about the reigning Christ as you have been about the suffering Christ? Look, my brothers and sisters, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals, At this hour he goes forth, riding upon his white horse, conquering and to conquer. Look, at his waist swing the keys of heaven and death and hell, for the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Behold him, brothers and sisters, in his present abundance of glory and endeavor to get as clear a perception of it as you have had of his shame. Not only weep at his burial, but rejoice at his resurrection. Not only sorrow at his cross, but worship at his throne. Do not merely think of the nails and of the spear, but behold the imperial purple which hangs so nobly upon his royal shoulders, and of the divine crown which he wears upon his majestic brow. I want to conduct you in such a frame of mind through the glories of my text. First, inviting you to observe the perpetual reign of Christ. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then I shall beg you to observe that flowing from this is the perpetual continuation of his church, and they shall dwell secure and then proceeding both from his continued reign and from the resulting perpetual existence of the church comes the greatness of our king. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. At the outset, observe carefully the perpetual reign of Christ. He lives, he reigns, he is king over his people. Notice first, that his reign is shepherd-like in its nature. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, but our master washed his disciples' feet. Earthly monarchs are often tyrants. Their yoke is heavy and their language is domineering, but it is not so with our king. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, for he is gentle and lowly in heart. He is a shepherd king. He has supremacy, but it is the superiority of a wise and tender shepherd over his needy and loving flock. He commands and receives obedience, but it is the willing obedience of the well-cared-for sheep rendered joyfully to their beloved shepherd whose voice they know so well. He rules by the force of love and the energy of goodness His power does not lie in imperious threatenings, but in imperial loving-kindness. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king, for never have a people had a king like this before. To be in his service is perfect freedom. To be his subject is to be a king. To serve him is to reign. Blessed are the people who are the sheep of his pasture. If they follow in his footsteps, their road is safe. If they sleep at his feet, no lion can disturb their peace. If they are fed from his hand, they shall lie down in green pastures and experience no lack. If they stay near to him, they shall drink of rivers of delight. Righteousness and peace are the stability of his throne. Joy and gladness are the ornaments of his reign. Oh, how happy are we who belong to such a prince. O oh, King in Israel, we pay you homage with loyal hearts. We come into your presence with thanksgiving and into your courts with praise. For you are our God and we are the people of your pasture and the sheep of your hand. Notice that the reign of Jesus is practical in its character. It is said, He shall stand and shepherd. The great head of the church is actively engaged in providing for his people to do everything expected of a shepherd, to guide, to watch, to preserve, to tend, and to feed. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the great head of the church, is always actively engaged for the church's good. Through him, the Spirit of God constantly descends upon the members of the church. By him, ministers are given in due season and all church officers in their proper place. When he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Our Lord does not close his eyes to the state of his church. Beloved, he is not a passive spectator of our needs. He is this day standing and shepherding his people. They are scattered, I know, as far as the poles of the earth, but our mighty shepherd can see every sheep and lamb of his flock and he gives them all their portion of food in due season. Oh, what blessed care and divine activity of our gracious king, always fighting against our enemies and at the same time sharing his kind influences with his friends. Consider again, for it is in our text, that this active reign is is continual in its duration. It is said, he shall stand and shepherd. Not he shall shepherd now and then and then leave his position. Not he shall one day grant a revival and then the next day leave his church to barrenness. Beloved, there is no pastor like Christ. I know my sheep, he can say, and in a very high and unique sense, He knows them through and through. He feels with them. In all their afflictions, he is afflicted. He is one with them eternally. There is no wakeful watchman like the Lord Jesus. Those eyes never slumber and those hands never rest. That heart never ceases to beat with love and those shoulders are never weary of carrying his people's burdens The church may go through her dark ages, but Christ is with her in the midnight. She may pass through her fiery furnace, but Christ is in the midst of the flame with her. Throughout her whole history, wherever you find the church, there you will find the church's Lord. The head is never severed from the body, nor is the watchful care of this gracious husband toward his spouse suspended even for an instant. I implore you to labor to perceive this noble picture. Here are his sheep in these pastures this morning. And here is our great shepherd with the crown upon his head, standing and feeding us all. And not us all alone, but dispensing his tender mercies to all the multitudes of his elect throughout the whole world. He is at this moment, king in Zion, ruling, present everywhere and everywhere, showing himself to be strong in the defense of his saints. I wish that our churches could be more influenced by a belief in the abiding power, presence, and preeminence of their living and reigning Lord. He is no dead king whose memory we are asked to embalm but a living leader and commander whose orders we must obey and whose honor we must defend. Do not fail to discern that the empire of Christ in his church is effectually powerful in its action. He shall shepherd in the strength of the Lord. Wherever Christ is, there is God and whatever Christ does is the act of the Most High. Oh, it is a joyful truth to consider that he who redeemed us was none other than God himself. He who led our captivity captive was Jehovah Jesus. He who stands today representing the interests of his people is very God of very God he who has sworn that every one of his people whom he has redeemed by blood shall be brought safe to his father's right hand is himself deity. O oh, my brothers and sisters, we rest upon a sure foundation when we build upon the incarnate God. And O oh, you saints of God, the interests of each one of you and of the one great church must be safe because our champion is God. Jehovah is our judge, Jehovah is our lawgiver, Jehovah is our king. He will save us. How can he fail or be discouraged? Who shall stand against him? Let us rehearse the mighty deeds of the Lord and tell of his wonders of old. Remember his victory upon Pharaoh and the pride of Egypt. Pharaoh said, "Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice?" and let Israel go. Ten plagues of terrible majesty taught the boaster that the Lord was not to be despised, and the humbled tyrant ordered the people to go their way. With a high hand and an outstretched arm, the Lord brought forth his people from the house of bondage. When the pride of Egypt's king again rose against the Most High, the Lord knew how to lay his adversary lower than the dust. I can almost picture the hosts of Egypt and their horses and their chariots hurrying after the Lord's fugitives. Their mouths are foaming with rage. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. See how they ride in all their pompous glory, swallowing the earth in their fury. O Israel, where is your defense? How will you escape? from your tyrannical master. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. With their horses and their chariots, the fierce enemies descended into the depths of the sea, but the Lord looked upon them and troubled them. You blew with your wind The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Let us sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Surely it will be so. In the end, with Jesus our King and all his saints, we also will sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. On that day when the arch enemy shall be overthrown and the hosts of evil shall be consumed and they who hate the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. One other word remains. Our Lord's kingdom is most majestic in its character. You will observe it is written by the prophet. He shall shepherd In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Jesus Christ is greatly to be reverenced. The familiarity with which we approach him is always to be tempered with the deepest and most reverent adoration. He is our brother, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. I know he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and he calls himself today our husband, and makes us members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. But yet we must never forget that it is written, Let all God's angels worship him. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Yes, Christ is majestic in his church. I wish, brothers and sisters, that we always thought of this. There is a glory and a majesty about all the laws of Christ and all his commands so that whether we baptize at his command or break bread in remembrance of him or lift up his cross in ministry, in whatever we do, in his name, which is in fact what he does through us, there is a connected majesty which should make our minds feel perpetually reverent before him. Oh, that the world could see the glory of Christ in the church. Oh, that the world could know who it is that is in the midst of the few, the feeble, the weak, the foolish, as they call them. There is a true and mysterious presence of Christ with his people. According to the promise, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It is because the world ignores this that she despises and sneers at the church of God. But it is in this promise that we find our comfort and our glory. We have a majesty around us if we are the people of God, which is not to be denied. Angels see it and wonder a majesty of indwelling Godhead. For the Lord is in the midst of us for a glory and around us for a defense. We will now occupy one or two minutes with the consequent perpetuity of the church. Because of the unseen but most certain presence of Christ as king in the midst of his people, his church abides. So says the text. Here, consider first that a church exists. What a wonder this is, It is perhaps the greatest miracle of all ages that God has a church in the world. You who are familiar with human history will know what I mean when I say that the whole history of the church is a series of miracles, a long stream of wonders, a little spark kindled in the midst of oceans, and yet all her boisterous waves cannot snuff it out. This is the great wonder that John saw in his vision and which history reveals in somber, sober fact. A woman was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. As for the woman, the church, she fled as on eagle's wings to her wilderness shelter prepared by God, until in great wrath the dragon pursued and persecuted her. The metaphor is fitting. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Yet, my brothers and sisters, as surely as that glorious male child, the Lord Jesus lives and sits upon the throne so surely shall the woman, the poor afflicted church, live on until the dragon's time is over and the king shall reign upon the earth. To what trials, my brothers and sisters, has the church of God not been subjected? What new invention can Satan bring forth? The fire, the rack, imprisonment, banishment, confiscation, slander, all these have been tried, and in them the church has been more than conqueror through him who loved her. False doctrine without, heresy and schism within, hypocrisy, formalism, fanaticism, pretenses of high spirituality, worldliness, these have all done their worst I marvel at the wondrous ingenuity of the great enemy of the church, but I think his devices must nearly have come to an end. Can he invent anything further? We have been astounded in these ages by an unbelieving bishop. We have been struck dumb with sorrow and amazement at a decree which declares that a church professing to be a church of Christ must permit men to be her ministers who deny the inspiration of Holy Scripture. This is a new thing under the sun. What next? And what next? But what shall we say about all this? The church, I mean the company of the Lord's called and faithful and chosen, still exists. The Lord has his elect people who still hold up the word of truth. And even in the most reprobate church, he may still say, I have a few names, even in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Observe, the text says, She shall dwell secure, which means not that she exists now and then, but that she exists always. This is wonderful. Always a church. When the full force of the pagan emperors came like a thundering avalanche upon her, she shook off the stupendous load as a man shakes the flakes of snow from his garment. And she lived on, uninjured, when papal Rome vented its malice even more furiously when cruel murderers hunted the saints among the alps or worried them in the low country when they poured out their blood in rivers and dyed the snow with crimson she still lived on and was never in a healthier state than when she was immersed in her own gore When, after a partial reformation in this country, the religious pretenders determined that the truly spiritual should be harassed out of the land, God's church did not sleep or suspend her work of service. Let the covenant signed in blood witness to the vigor of the persecuted saints. Hear the voice of Cargill and Cameron thundering among the mountains against a false king and an apostate people. Hear the testimony of Bunyan and his companions, who would rather rot in dungeons than bow the knee to Baal. Ask me, where is the church? And I can find her at any and every period from the first day when in the upper room the Holy Spirit came down even until now. In one unbroken line, our apostolic succession runs, not through the Church of Rome, not from the superstitious hands of priest-made popes or king-created bishops. What a varnished lie is the apostolic succession of those who boast so proudly of it, but through the blood of good men, of true men, who never forsook the testimony of Jesus Through the work of true pastors, laborious evangelists, faithful martyrs, and honorable men of God, we trace our lineage back to the fishermen of Galilee and glory that we perpetuate by God's grace, that true and faithful church of the living God in whom Christ abides and will abide until the world's crash. Observe, dear friends that in the use of the term dwell secure, we have not only existence and continued existence, but the idea of quiet, calm, uninjured duration. It does not say she lingers, hunted, tempted, worried, but she dwells secure. Oh, the calmness of the church of God under the attacks of her most malicious foes, It is most noteworthy how in most instances, the church of God still keeps her foothold where she has been most savagely persecuted. In modern times, we find in Madagascar, after years of extreme persecution, the church of God rises from her ashes like the phoenix from the flames. All that the enemy has done has been of no avail against the church. The old rock has been washed and washed and washed again by stormy waves and submerged a thousand times in the stormy floods, but even her angles and corners remain unaltered and unalterable. We may say of the Lord's tabernacle, not one of its stakes has been removed, nor one of her cords broken. The house of the Lord from foundation to pinnacle dwells secure Still, the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. No, not a single stone of it, because it had been founded on the rock. But why all this, dear friends? Why is it that we have seen the church endure to this day? How is it that we are confident that even if worse times arrive, The church would weather the storm. Why this security? Only because Christ is in the midst of her. We certainly cannot depend upon creeds. They are good in their own way, but they are like broken reeds if we rely on them. We cannot depend upon parliament, nor kings, nor queens. We may write up the most clear and concise doctrinal statement But we shall find that the next generation will depart from the truth unless God shall be pleased to give it renewed grace from on high. The reason why the church of God exists is not because of her ecclesiastical regulations, her organization, her ceremonies, her ministers, or her creeds, but the presence of the Lord in the midst of her And while Christ lives and Christ reigns and stands and shepherds his church, she is safe. But if he was gone, it would be with her as it is with you and me when the Spirit of God has departed from us. We are as weak as other men, and she would be just as powerless. But now, thirdly, flowing from both of these, from the perpetual presence of Christ and the continual existence of his church is the greatness of our King. Now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Christ is great in his church. Oh, how great in our hearts where he reigns supreme. My heart leaps at the sound of his name. Oh, for crowns, for golden crowns, let us crown him king in Zion. Oh, for a well-tuned harp and for David's feet to dance before the ark at the very mention of Jesus' name. Now shall he be great indeed in our hearts, but he is to be great to the ends of the earth. That is the promise of which we will say it is accomplished to a degree even now. Christ is made great in the conversion of every sinner. When the humble penitent cries, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and the peace-speaking blood drops upon the troubled conscience and the soul bows meekly to accept the finished righteousness, then Christ is great. And he is great in the consecration of every one of his blood-bought saints. When they live for him, when in their prayers they make mention of him, when they give him their heart's music, their life's light, and their lips testimony, when they feel that tribulation is a joy if endured for him and that the hardest work is a dear delight when undertaken for his sake, then Christ is great. Think, my brothers and sisters, how many ships are now sailing the blue sea in which there are hearts that love the name of Jesus. Listen, across the waves of the Atlantic and the Pacific, I hear the sound of prayer and praise from many vessels bearing the British flag. From many an island of the sea, the song is carried upon the breeze. And there across the waters, in the land of our American brothers and sisters, now so sadly chastened with war, multitudes of hearts beat as high as ours at the mention of the Savior's name. Here across the channel, in Holland, in Sweden, in Germany, in Switzerland, and even in France and Italy, how many claim his name and praise him this day. We speak of our queen's dominions and say that the sun never sets upon them. We may in truth say this of our Lord Jesus. People of all colors trust in his blood. They who look upward to the southern cross and they who follow the polar star alike worship his dear name. And so from land to land and from shore to shore, a sacrifice of a pure offering is brought to his altar. It is accomplished to some degree, but oh, how small the degree when we think of the thick darkness that covers the majority of the people. Again, it is a promise which is guaranteed as to its fulfillment in the fullest sense. Courage, brothers and sisters, courage! The night is not forever, the morning comes. As I think about the signs of the times, I would gladly hope that we shall live to see brighter and better days. Now, says the text, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Prophet, I wish that your now were true this day. Now, even now, let him reign. Why does he tarry? Why are his chariots so long in coming? Will it be, my brothers and sisters, that Christ will come before the world is converted. If so, come, Lord Jesus. Or will the world be converted first? If so, we welcome the mercy. But whether or not this we do know, he will have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. The day will come when everywhere the great shepherd shall reign. But remember, dear friends, that while this promise is thus guaranteed as to its fulfillment, its accomplishment is to be prayed for. This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them to increase their people like a flock. The mountain of the Lord shall rise In the latter days, but take note, though there will be no sound of trowel or hammer, the sound of prayer and praise will be heard as the mountain of God's house ascends upward. You know the picture. The prophet had seen the Lord's house standing as it were in a valley. And as he looked at it, it became a little hill. The ground began to heave and soon it had grown from a little hill into a lofty mountain and up it rose and grew more great before his eyes until the Alps were dwarfed and the Himalayas were stunted and up it still went and not the house only, but the mountain too until infinitely higher than the projected tower of Babel, which man meant to be the world's center. This house stood out clear and sharp above the clouds, having pinnacles high up in God's heaven and yet deep foundations in man's earth, and all nations began to flow to it as to the great center. What a dream! What a vision! Yet this is how it will be. The church is, as it were, in a plane just now. She begins to rise. Oh, remarkable movement. She begins to rise. Her mountains swell and grow. She attracts observers. She cannot be held down. Up rises the mountain as though expanded by some inward fire. And up it goes until it touches heaven and God communes with men. Then shall be heard the great hallelujah. The dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them. But then, and this is the conclusion, and I hope God may help me to press it on your hearts. All this is to be labored for as well as prayed for. My soul pants and aches to see Christ as glorious in the eyes of people. Is there a Christian here with a soul so dead that he does not desire the extension of his master's kingdom? Sirs, is there one among you who counts it little to see Jesus Christ lifted up in people's hearts? I know I speak to many, and the Lord knows it, to many of whom Christ is the dearest of all, the fairest among ten thousand, and altogether lovely. Now. If Christ is to be glorified, he must be glorified through you. If his kingdom is to come, it must come through you. God works, but God works through means. He works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Souls are to be saved, but they are not saved without instruments. The feast is to be furnished with guests, but you are to go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. I know my master is to have many crowns, but they are to be crowns for which you have fought, which you have won through his grace, and which you place at his feet, that he may honor you by wearing them upon his brow. I have been musing all this week upon that celebrated scene in ancient history which seems to me to be so much like the state of our church just now the story of Gideon, the son of Joash, threshing wheat in the winepress because he was afraid to be seen by the Midianites who had ruined the land. Now, we, as Baptists, have generally been too much afraid to be seen. We have threshed our corn somewhere away in the winepress, up a back court, down a narrow street any place would do to build a chapel and as long as people could not find it the site was thought to be advantageous it was threshing wheat in the wine press to hide it from the enemy well now i think the time has come that we should not be afraid of these midianites any longer long has the church of god been oppressed and kept back she has been content to let the world devour her harvest. There have been few additions to the churches. They remain very much what they were 20 or 30 years ago. But my brothers and sisters, some of us think that we have seen our fleece wet with dew while all around it was dry. And we believe that the Lord has said to us, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. We think we have had the Lord's commission. Go in this might of yours. We do not expect all of you to go with us, for the people are too many. We expect that there are many of the trembling and faint-hearted who will step back from the battle and let them. Such people hinder our march. We fear that you are not all men who lap, but we have a few who care very little for the ease and rest of life, but who snatch a hasty drink and with zeal and passionate earnestness run to meet the adversary. Now, these, we do expect to go with us to the battle. But what are we to do? The hosts of Midian are counted in the millions. Here in this great city, we have three million people. And what if I were to say two and a half million of them do not know their right hand from their left in matters of religion? I believe I should speak too charitably. For if I could believe that there were half a million true believers in London, I should have vastly greater hopes for it than I have now. But alas, that is not the case. Millions, millions are gathered in the valley of indecision who are not on the Lord's side. What can you and I do? We can do nothing of ourselves, but we can do everything by the help of our God. Where Christ is, there is might, and where God is, there is strength. Let us, therefore, in God's name, determine to plant new churches wherever openings occur. Like Gideon's men, let us rally around our church officers and follow wherever a warm heart leads the way. Gideon took his men and instructed them to do two things. Covering up a torch in an empty jar, he commanded them at an appointed signal to break the jar and let the light shine. Then blow their trumpets and shout, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! This is just what all Christians must do. First, you must shine Break the jar which conceals you. Throw aside the bushel which has been hiding your candle and shine. Let your light shine before others. Let your good works be such that when they look at you, they know that you have been with Jesus. Much good is done by shining. Then there must be the sound, the blowing of the trumpet, "'Oh, dear friends, the great majority of London "'will never hear the gospel "'unless you go and blow the trumpet in their ears. "'Many who are members of this church "'never heard a gospel sermon "'until they heard some of you preaching in the street. "'Why,' said one, "'I never went to a place of worship, "'but I went down a street "'and there stood a young man at the corner. "'I listened to him.' And God was pleased to send the arrow to my conscience. And then I came into the house of God. Take the gospel to them. Carry it to their door. Put it in their way. Do not allow them to escape it. Blow the trumpet right into their ears. In the name of God, I pray you do this. Remember that the true war cry of the church is Gideon's war cry, a sword for the Lord. God must do it. It is God's work. But we are not to be passive. Instrumentality is to be used. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. If we only cry a sword for the Lord, we shall be guilty of presumption. This is the cry of every lazy person. What good ever comes from saying the Lord will do his own work? let us sit still. Nor must it be a sword for Gideon alone, for that would be idolatrous reliance upon an arm of flesh. We can do nothing of ourselves, but put the two together, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. O oh, my brothers and sisters, God help you to learn this lesson Well, and then you will go forth, shining and sounding, living and teaching, testifying and living out the truth. It seems to me that now is a glorious opportunity. There is a spirit of hearing among the people. Almost anyone may get a hearing who is willing to preach Christ, now or never, Sons of Jacob, in God's name, go forward and let something be done for God and for his Christ and for a perishing age, for a dark world, for heaven's glory and for hell's defeat. Up, you who know the Lord, and may God give you a great victory and deliverance. I want you to make some practical point of these things today. God has been pleased to put a sword into my hand, and to give me my torch and my jar. The pastor's college has now become in the Lord's hands a marvelous power for good. A blessing greater than I could have expected rests on this work. We are continually sending them out, and God uses them in the conversion of souls I have never seen any institution more blessed in the conversion of souls than the institution of our college. Without saying anything to discount other efforts, I do believe God has given our institution a special blessing and will continue to do so more and more. I want you all, both hearers and readers of my sermons, to feel that this is your work and to help me in it while we continue to cry a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. God works, and therefore we work. God is with us, and therefore we are with God and stand on his side. Inasmuch as many of these men plant churches, we want you to help to build the places where the new congregations can be accommodated. And to that end, we have striven to raise a fund of five thousand pounds to be lent out to these new churches to be repaid by installments without interest it is a small sum but it is as much as i think we can do and careful stewardship will turn it to good account and when this is done we will go on and do something else for jesus i speak to you now upon a practical point and come to it at once If you are content to live without serving God, I am not. And if you are willing to let these hours roll by without doing something to extend the kingdom of Jesus, let me be gone from you. Let me go to those of warmer spirits and of holier aspirations. For we must fight for God. There must be victories won for him. We must extend the range of the gospel. We must find places where souls can be brought to hear the word. Hell shall not forever laugh at our inactivity, and heaven shall not eternally weep at our slothfulness. Let us be up and doing. Every one of you, go out personally and serve with your flaming torch of holy example and with your trumpet tones of earnest declaration. Serve your Lord, and God will be with you, and Midian shall be put to confusion, and the Lord of hosts shall reign forever and ever. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Hear that note, dead souls, and live Thank you for listening to this sermon originally preached by Charles Spurgeon. Some of the older language has been updated. Feel free to duplicate and distribute this material, but please do not charge anyone for it or in any way alter the content without permission. You can support this ministry by subscribing, liking, following, sharing, and leaving us positive reviews. Most importantly, please join with us in praying that God would use these sermons to both save those who are lost and impassion his people for his glory.